somewhat this morning. So if you have your Bible, uh, grab it and turn to Genesis chapter 32. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a pew Bible in front of you. You can grab that pew Bible and turn to page 27 for convenience. Now, if you have a Bible on your phone, I'll trust, uh, I'll think the best of you as you look at your cell phone this morning. I'll trust you won't be checking the weather for the game today. But um, let's turn to Genesis chapter 32 together. In all seriousness, as I was taking a look at, at the breadth of Scripture and what, what the Bible has to say on this topic, uh, one of the things that God has tasked the ministers with is to preach the whole counsel of God. And so I wanted to not miss uh, this aspect of anxiety and what God's Word has to say about the anxiety that many of us experience in our lives. And so we're going to, to get started this morning, we're going to read the first 21 verses of Genesis chapter 32. That's a lot to begin reading, but many of you are trying to read through the Bible in a year. You probably skipped a day or two. Uh, we'll catch up with this chapter today. You're welcome. Genesis chapter 32. Here we go. Verse 1. Uh, at the, this is near uh, the end of uh, the story of Jacob, although Jacob's story really spans Genesis chapter 25 through 49. This is the end of his time with Laban. He's getting ready to go back home. Genesis 32, verse 1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. And so he called the name of that place Mahanaim, which means two camps. Verse 3. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. Verse 6, And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau calls, comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Verse 9, And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, the God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I'm not worthy the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant, for with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have come back. I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good, and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude." So he stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. And these he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. 
They are present sent to my Lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is rich and deep. Frankly, Father, there's a lot here. There's a lot of corn that we're going to have to leave on the cob this morning because of the restrictions of time. But I pray that your spirit would come and would feed us and nourish us with your word. Pray that your spirit would move so that we could see ourselves clearly in your word today. And we could see you clearly in your word as well. And we pray that you would reconcile the conflict between us and you this day as your spirit moves in our hearts. And reconcile the conflicts between us and one another. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What is your initial reaction? What's your initial reaction? If you're ever driving down the interstate or you're driving in town and you know you're going at least a little bit over the speed limit, like 5, 10, 15, 20 miles per hour, somewhere in there, and you happen to pass by a cop that's in the median, What's your initial reaction? It's a rhetorical question. Maybe you don't want others to know what you say or what you think. But what happens inside of you? You panic, don't you? You get scared, don't you? You get anxious. And you begin looking in your rearview mirror to see if that police officer is going to turn on their lights, turn on that siren... And track you down. Why are you anxious in that moment? Do you know why? Because you know you're guilty. You know you're guilty. That's the reason why you're anxious in that moment. To add shame to the the anxiety, have you noticed these new uh, highfalutin speed Signs around town and particularly in Lakeland that flash the speed you're driving. If the speed limit is 35 and you start going 37 or 38, it flashes. And I won't say whether or not this has ever happened to me. I've at least seen it with other people that when you go so fast that it's dangerous, it just doesn't even record the number anymore. Do you know what it says? It reads, too fast. Not a way to shame me in the community when I've broken the law. Make your transgressions public for all the community to know. Why do I bring this up about this idea of knowing that we're guilty and that causing anxiety in our lives? Well, for this month, we are in a a sermon series called Anxious. And we've taken a look at several 
truths that the scriptures present to us about our anxiety and how God responds to our anxiety. Patrick's sermon was basically this. Jesus doesn't want you to be anxious. He wants you to know that, that he knows everything that you need as far as physical, material possessions and needs. And so God doesn't want you to be anxious. One of the sermons I shared with you at the beginning of this year was that I was asked the question, worth the wait? Is all the anxiety going on in your life worth the weight and the burden that you feel? And the answer is no. You're to fear God alone and, and know that God cares for you and not worry about that. And then last week we took a look at the fact that we can get so busy with our lives and so concerned about all the things we need to get accomplished that we can short-circuit our time and, and, and short-change our time with Jesus. And so last week we were encouraged by God's word, particularly in Luke's gospel, to prioritize our time with Jesus. But today there's a tough truth we've got to, we got to chew on today. And it's this. Sometimes you are anxious because of the sin in your life. I know you didn't want to hear it. I didn't want to hear it either when I began studying God's word, preparing for this sermon series. But it's a difficult truth that we need to face in our own lives. And we see it at work in the life of Jacob as well. And it's this, that we are Sometimes anxious because of the sin in our lives. We see in our passage this morning in Exodus chapter 32, verse 7, that Jacob is greatly afraid. He's greatly distressed. Do you know why? Because back in Genesis chapter 27, verse 41, the last time that Jacob saw Esau, do you know what Esau wanted to do to Jacob? He wanted to kill him. And so it's been a long time, it's at least been 40 years since Jacob has seen his brother Esau, whom he's cheated. We'll, we'll remind ourselves all the, the, the rank and harsh and tough things that Jacob did in his life. But the reason that Jacob is afraid and anxious is because the last time that Jacob saw Esau... Esau wanted to kill him. And Jacob's hoping, we saw in this passage, to bribe his brother Esau with all these goats and all these calves and all these bulls and all these donkeys and all of these material blessings. But what do we learn in verse 7? That Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And so he divides the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps. And then it says in verse 11, in his prayer, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. Why was Jacob afraid of Esau? Why was Jacob anxious? Because of Jacob's past sins. That's the reason Jacob was anxious. Friends, some of you are anxious today because of the sin in your life. Some of you are anxious because of past sins in your life. You're afraid that some people will find you out. And so this morning, I want us to unpack this passage together by 
answering two questions. And the first question I have for you is this. Are you wrestling with your sin? Is that why you're anxious this morning? Are you wrestling with your sin? Your sin will make you anxious. Do you know why? Because you know with your sin comes consequences. Some of you have seen fractured relationships because of harsh words you've spoken. You've seen fractured relationships because of selfish decisions you've made in your life. You've seen fractured relationships perhaps even from immoral business practices that you either initiated or were a part of. And so it's the reason some of us are anxious sometimes is because of the sin in our lives. That's exactly what we see happening in the life of Jacob. Jacob is afraid because of his sin. He knows that he's cheated his brother time and time again. And he's afraid that this is his day of reckoning with Jacob. What were some of Jacob's sins? Can we just take a stroll through Jacob's history this morning? Well, in Genesis chapter 25, we we learn about Jacob's birth. Do you remember what happened to Jacob's birth? Actually, before Jacob was even born... His mother is complaining about the fact that her two twins are wrestling within her womb. They're already wrestling with one another in the womb. And so we see the beginning of the sinful pattern in Jacob's life before he's even born. That he's wrestling with his brother Esau in his mother's womb. And then as his mother gives birth to him, we see in Genesis chapter 25 that although Esau is the firstborn, how does Jacob come out of the womb? He comes out of the womb with his hand firmly, firmly gripped on his brother's heel. What's he doing? He's trying to pull Esau back and become the firstborn even from his mother's womb. And so that's where Jacob gets his name. Jacob, which means he grabs the heel or he cheats. See, the reason for the anxiety, the fear, and the shame in Jacob's life is for this reason. It's because of his sin. There's a habitual sin pattern in the life of Jacob that he's a cheat, he's a liar, he's a thief, he's selfish. And we see that habitual sin pattern continue in Genesis chapter 25 when Jacob cheats his brother Esau out of his birthright by seeing Esau in a moment of weakness as he comes home from the woods and Esau's hungry and Jacob's been making this delicious stew and he promises to give Esau a good heaping bowl of stew if Esau will sell him his birthright. Esau consents. And then immediately regrets. And now we see in Genesis chapter 27 that Jacob cheats his brother out of his father's blessing because he dresses up like a woolly mammoth or something. He puts on this big hairy coat and he goes in to see his dad, fooling his dad that he's Esau and he receives Isaac's blessing 
when Esau should have been the one to receive the blessing. And so in Genesis chapter 27, the last time that Jacob sees Esau, and if you want to flip there, you can. In 27 verse 41, don't take my word for it. You can check me by the word of God. It says, 27 verse 41, now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching and then I will kill my brother Jacob. What's the point? Jacob is anxious because of the sin in his life. That was a tough truth I had to face as I prepared for this sermon series. And so to preach the whole counsel of God, i got to share it with you that sometimes the reason you're anxious is because of the sin in your life. And you know you deserve judgment. For some of you, you're anxious because of past sins. For some of you, you're, you're, you're anxious because of things that you're currently indulging in and you don't want people to find out and you're afraid people will find out. And some of you are afraid of further conflicts in your life, in your marriage, your relationship because of sin that you've committed in the past or currently. And so we see in Jacob's life in Genesis 32 that he's trying to bribe his brother to appease him. Are you wrestling with anxiety this morning? If you're wrestling with anxiety, you may be wrestling with anxiety because you're wrestling with your sin. Well, if I've got one finger pointing at you, I can guarantee you there are three or four more pointing back at me. So I'm going to share a true story with you about from my life. When I was in the sixth grade, we had a kind of a relay day when I was in sixth grade. And there was this real cute fifth grade girl by the name of Kelly. I kind of like Kelly. I'm not going to lie. She was kind of cute. I mean, she's not as cute as Jennifer, but you know what I'm saying. She was cute back in the day. And, and by the way, girls, remember this. Boys are stupid and dumb, and boys really don't know how to talk to girls. And so a lot of times when boys are anxious about being around a girl and they like the girl, sometimes they'll just be mean. It that makes no sense. It's stupid. That, that's just what boys do. It's how the sin plays out in our lives. So on that day at field day, I remember being very mean to Kelly and made no sense. I was very rude to her. I was very mean to her, and I had really forgotten about it. That was the sixth grade. You fast forward about 11 or 12 years later. I've graduated from high school. I've graduated from college. I'm serving as, as a youth pastor in, in, in a church in my hometown, and, and I found that there was one place that the teenagers would not go on my day off, and that was the laundromat. So I always volunteered to do the laundry for Jennifer because I knew I could go to the laundromat and read and no, none of the teenagers would bother me there. So I was sitting there one day doing the laundry, waiting on the laundry, and one of my friends walked in. I hadn't seen him in about five or six years, and I waved at him. But then I noticed behind him came a girl that looked oddly familiar to me. It was Kelly. And what I didn't realize was that my friend had actually married that girl, Kelly. And the more I talked to my friend and Kelly was over there doing the laundry. The Holy Spirit reminded me of how rude and mean I was to Kelly at school that day. And I started getting anxious. 
I started getting scared. <clears throat> My friend said, let's get together sometime. And you and Jennifer and Kelly and I, we could get together and have dinner. I was like, yeah, yeah, that'd be great. And I'll be confessed to you, I lied. I was like, yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great. No intention of doing it because I was ashamed of how I treated Kelly in the past. So I got of our laundry together and I scooted out the door and made our way home. It was on a Friday. It was my day off. And I remember thinking, I dodged the bullet. I shared with Jennifer the situation. She's like, well, just pray about it. The next morning, I was still praying about it, and I opened up my door to, to go to the mailbox there on Key Street, and I looked out, and we'd been living there for almost a year. I looked out, and across the street was my friend sitting on the front porch of the house across from us with his wife, Kelly. I thought, oh, no. He waves at me, and he comes over, and he starts talking to me. And I can't listen to a word that he's saying because all that's going replaying in my mind are all the mean, rude, ugly things that I said about Kelly. And finally, I just stopped, and I said, i got to tell you what God's doing in my heart right now. And I told him some of the mean things I'd said to Kelly. I said, I, I'm embarrassed to go to her and talk to her, and what I want to ask you is that you would go to her for me and and ask her to forgive me. What was happening? I was wrestling with my sin. With my past sin. And that's why I was anxious. Now, the good news for me was that Kelly never remembered a single word that I said. But the point is what the scriptures say in Psalm 95.8. That today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Friends, today, do you hear the voice of God speaking to you? As we reflect on all of the, the selfish things and self-serving things that Jacob has done, do you see your sin and the sins of Jacob and say, yeah, that's me? Then today, don't harden your hearts, friends, but rather repent. Because the reality is that all sin, by its nature, is selfish and self-seeking. And the reason many of us are anxious, because of the sin patterns in our life. So that's my first question I bring to you today, is are you wrestling with your sin? Is that why you're anxious? And then the last question I want you to answer today is, are you wrestling with God's grace? That's what we see happen in, in the rest of, in the other part of Jacob's life, is that he wrestles with God's grace. If you wrestle with the, the doctrine of election or predestination and God's sovereign grace, then I just encourage you to read the life of Jacob, because Jacob is a filthy, rotten, stinking scoundrel. There's nothing good about Jacob whatsoever. In fact, the only good thing I can find about Jacob is that in verse 9, he prays. And I was scouring the, 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 the life of Jacob. There's one other time where God comes to him in, in Genesis chapter 28 in Jacob's ladder, that very famous scene, and God promises to, 
to, to fulfill his covenant promises to Abraham through the life of Jacob and through the nation of Israel. But even in that situation, it's God pouring his sovereign grace out upon Jacob. It has nothing to do with anything good that God has that seen in Jacob up to this point in his life. And it has nothing to do with anything good that God foresees in Jacob's life whatsoever. Rather, it's just a picture of God's sovereign grace. And so we see Jacob throughout his life wrestling with God's grace. In fact, in Genesis 31, verse 3, God tells Jacob to go back home. And after he spent some time with his father-in-law Laban, who cheated him out of many, many years of service and made him marry his ugly daughter, um, as well as the pretty one. Yeah, you laugh. You know that story, right? Genesis 31, verse 3. It says, then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers, to your kindred, and I will be with you. And so we see in Genesis chapter 32 that Jacob is admitting to God in the prayer, I know you've told me to go back to my hometown. I know you've promised me that you will be with me. But God, just in case you've forgotten, the last time that Esau saw me, he wanted to kill me. So Jacob prays in verses 9 through 11. Of Genesis 32, he says this. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, O Yahweh, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. Notice he, he wrestles with God's grace here. He admits, he admits it. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. Where with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. But notice he's focused upon the material blessings. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother and the hand of my Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, essentially kill me. And so we see in Genesis 32, Jacob's wrestling with God's grace in the face of his guilt and his shame. Some of you are wrestling with God's grace this morning. You're convinced that you're beyond God's reach, but you're not. You're convinced that God's grace is for everyone in this sanctuary, it's for everyone in Bartow, but there's an asterisk by God's grace. And if you look at the footnote, it says exception and it reads your name. God be praised because that's not true. God's grace is greater than all of your sins, all of your shame, all of your regrets, and all of your mistakes. And what God was doing in the life of Jacob, and we see in Genesis 32, the part we haven't read yet, is that God is sanctifying Jacob as he wrestles with his sin and as he wrestles with God's grace. And that's what God is doing in many of your lives right now. You're wrestling with your sin and yet you're wrestling with God's grace. And you're trying to see how do these two match up. How do they mash up together. And you feel like you're walking around in your relationship with God. Not physically wounded but spiritually or emotionally wounded. But that's what God does to you. Because he loves you enough to not leave you the way you are. 
He'd rather wound you and discipline you to save you and sanctify you. And that's what happens in Jacob's life in Genesis 32. Let's start reading verse 22 and following. It says, The same night, talking about Jacob, he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children across the fort of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And in that cultural context, I know someone's name was to know their character and to have authority and power over them. And there he blessed him, verse 30. And so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Look at verse 31. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. What happens? Jacob wrestles with God's grace. He walks away from his encounter with God, wounded, broken, but changed. He's closer to God than he's ever been. And friends, that's why God loves you so much to allow you to wrestle with your sin and wrestle, wrestle with his grace today. You may feel wounded and broken down by God, but God loves you so much that he'd rather see you wounded, changed, and closer to him than full of health or wealth. And see what God does in the miracle in verse, verses 1 through 4, chapter 33. And then Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold... Esau was coming and 400 men with him. Now imagine this. Jacob is wounded now. He's limping. If he ever thought he could take his brother Esau, it was in the past. It's not now in the present because now he walks with a hip. Even if his brother begins to get the best of him, he cannot run from his brother. So Jacob is totally, now Israel is totally dependent upon God for this provision in his life. And look what it says. Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front. Then Leah with their children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. What happens? God reconciles Jacob and Esau. Not because of anything good in Jacob but purely by his grace. Friends, that's a picture of the gospel. And that's precisely what Jesus Christ offers you and offers me today. That we need to be reconciled with the holy, just God. And because of the sin in our lives, we need to be reconciled with one another. When I watched the funeral of Billy Graham a number of years ago, 
I'll never forget the testimony of one of his daughters, Ruth Graham. Ruth shared about the fact that she had divorced her first husband. And as you can imagine, those of you that have experienced divorce in the life of the church, still to this day, many people that I talk to in the life of the church say they feel a stigma, like a scarlet letter on them if they've been divorced and still worshiping in church. Ruth Graham said, now put that on steroids that you're Billy Graham's daughter, one of the most faithful, successful evangelists in the history of the world. And ignoring her father's advice and ignoring her mother's advice, she quickly remarried to a man she barely knew. And she said within about 24 to 48 hours, she knew that this second marriage was the greatest mistake of her life. And so thus fearing being shunned and bringing further shame to her father and her mother and to the Billy Graham name and Billy Graham ministries, she chose to leave her second husband. And she began to make her way home to her mom and dad's home, that cabin there in North Carolina. Ruth Graham says that her heart was anxious and beat, was beating with anxiety. She made her way home because she was scared about how her father would respond to her. And she noticed as she began to slowly make her way up the mountain, she noticed her father, Billy Graham, sitting on his, in his rocking chair on the front porch. And she thought, oh no, here's where it happens. Here's where the war happens. Here's where the battle, the argument happens. She was beginning to build with anxiety and her heart began to pump the blood faster and faster through her veins. And finally she made her car come to a stop in front of her mom and dad's house. And she said as she, as she parked the car, slowly her dad, Billy Graham, rose from his rocking chair and began slowly making his way down the steps. And she said she gripped the steering wheel, embracing for impact. And at that moment, her dad opened the car door. She got out of the car door. And she said, her dad smiled at her and said, welcome home. And he hugged her. And he kissed her. And Ruth Graham said this at her dad's funeral. My dad wasn't God. But that day, my dad showed me what God is like. That his grace is greater than all my sins. And that day, Billy Graham was a messenger of the gospel of reconciliation. Friends, we're anxious because we're anxious sinners. But remember, you're an anxious sinner in the hand of a gracious God. Remember this. When iniquities prevail against me, he atones for your transgressions. We are anxious sinners in the hand of a gracious Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word tells us that we were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. But we have been reconciled in Jesus' body of flesh by his death. 
in order that he might present us holy and blameless and above reproach before you. So we confess to you today, Father, we're anxious because we're anxious sinners. But we thank you that we're reconciled to you, O God, through the death of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes, sir, Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray and we say thank you. Amen.